All right, the kids can walk to their classes. Well, this morning, as you know, we know it is Palm Sunday, um, and it really is the time we kick off the the Holy Week, the Passion of the Christ, and um, we think of this coming Friday. We do have a, a Good Friday service from 6 to 7 p.m., communion time together and some, some songs and just a short devotional from God's Word. And um, I also wanted just to remind you that there is some um, uh, cards back there. You can pick these up on the way out and give those out and invite folks uh, not only to our Good Friday service, but also to our uh, sunrise service. This year we're doing a, a community sunrise service up on uh, Skylon, and basically it's up on top of 92. So you drive up 92, you get off there at the cemetery, and uh, they'll have some signs out where the sunrise service is. Basically, you just kind of bear to your right, and you come right around. You have a wonderful view of the the bay as the sun rises, and, um, and then we hold a uh, service together uh, with a couple other churches. And uh, uh, just looking forward to that time together. And it, it's only about a half hour, maybe 45 minutes at the most. So you're usually out of there by 7.30. And it uh, gives you time to get, get back home, get the kids ready, and do whatever you have to do. Um, but it's a wonderful time to see the sun come up. Last year it actually rained, so it was, it was uh, bittersweet. But uh, it, was, it was interesting. <laughs> so we're praying for good weather this year. But this morning I just want to read a, a, a short part of what we've been going through in Romans, and um, you can turn there if you like, Romans chapter 8. I just want to read a couple verses because I want to tie this into what we're going to be looking at this morning in John chapter 12, uh, where Christ enters into Jerusalem. Um, In verse 31 of Romans chapter 8, it says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. We've been looking at these verses over the last couple of weeks, and we had five basically unanswerable questions out of these, this text. And the first one was, if God is for us, who can be against us? There in 31. And uh, the second question was, how will he not also give him, uh, with him graciously give us all things? In verse 32. And then in verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Verse 34 says, the question is, who is to condemn? And then in verse 35, finally, the ultimate question, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? And so when we think about this coming week of the passion of the Christ and him suffering on a cross, um, it's fitting to get into the, the flow of that Uh, by turning our hearts to another portion of Scripture, even though we understand that God is obviously at work, it's Him who gave up His Son. And uh, a lot of times you hear this time of week, poor Jesus, you know, He had this wonderful 30-some years of living here on earth, and then finally they caught up with Him, and and they were able to uh, capture Him and put Him on a cross and kill Him, and uh, there it ended. Um, We know that's not true, but some people depict it that way. And so I want to maybe have us look at this a little differently this morning. And if you had to have a, a subtitle for our message this morning, uh, basically it would be following Jesus for the right reasons. Following Jesus for the right reasons. Because we've, we've spent a lot of time in Romans chapter 8 and we've talked about the idea that when God saves us, um, that we are secure in Christ. That there's nothing that can undo that. And so I want to look at at John chapter 12. And as we uh, turn our hearts over there, you know, we traditionally call this Palm Sunday. And it's a day filled with um, meaning for Christians. And uh, it's a day of hosannas as we've sung this morning, hallelujahs and, and, and different things like that. As we remember Jesus as our king, the one who entered that city uh, to the praises of his people. And they, they hailed him as king on that day. Uh, hope was bright. Hearts were filled with anticipation. They've long awaited this Messiah. And finally, the people 
begin to feel this anticipation building. And they begin to understand that probably this man, Jesus of Nazareth, was the Messiah. This was he. Um, and really, the, the thing I think that pushed the crowds over the edge to follow Christ was that, that crowning achievement that sealed their thoughts was the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. This just happened. And this was a great day. It was filled with hope. And as we know, the story plays out there. Hosannas were suddenly silenced. And the enthusiasm turned to what we might call indifference. And by Friday, it was just unparalleled hatred for the Savior, for their king. And we know that Christ was crucified by a bloodthirsty mob made up of the same people who hailed him as king a few days earlier. And so as Jesus enters this city, he hears the hosannas ringing out and the praise. But he certainly senses behind those words of praise feelings of hate. He knew sooner or later this would turn out for his death. When you think of the the life and ministry of Christ and you look at how he carried himself during his ministry, he really kind of changed everything up on this day. Because up to this point, he avoided any kind of public um, confrontation. He avoided um, kind of letting people know who he really was because it wasn't the father's time yet. It had to be in the Father's proper time because God is sovereign and God is in control. But now, this day came and it was his hour. He was on schedule. The divine plan was unfolding. And the timing, as well as any event itself, had been scheduled even before the world began. And the Son of God... Jesus, the Messiah, was to die at Passover as the final Passover lamb. And now it was time to bring this issue to head. And so Jesus himself, in the will of the Father, deliberately planned what you might call a demonstration. He planned a final public presentation of himself to Israel. Knowing well that because all these people were there, that the masses would eventually get behind him. And because of that, that would enrage the Jewish religious leaders of Jesus' day to the degree that they would eventually seek his life and would seek to kill him. See, he was forcing the hand of the Sanhedrin, the, the, the ruling religious leaders of the day. And he forced them to set aside their timetable in favor of God's timetable. Because when you understand what the Sanhedrin's motivation was, they always wanted to kill Jesus. He was taking limelight away from their religiosity. They had been planning it for a long time, but they didn't want to do it now on the Passover when you have all these people there. And all these people seem to be following this one man. You can imagine if they tried to kill him that somehow they would think, wow, they would just be overrun by the multi-millions of people that were there for the celebration of the Passover. And because of the the Passover, Passover activity that they were involved in as religious leaders, it was just way too much to happen during that week. And so they thought, you know what, we'll let all this excitement die down and then we'll just take them out. But Jesus had his plan. The Father had his plan. And Jesus hastened this whole process into crisis mode. He brought the event to pass in God's good time. And it was something that was accomplished and planned before the foundation of the world, just like our own salvation was. 
It was the predetermined plan of God that this would happen at this time. And just as we just read in Romans, it says that he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. This is part of that process of the father giving him up. That he would ride into Jerusalem that day. And you can follow along as I read the account from John chapter 12, verses 12 to 19. It says, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. And just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples do not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing? Look, the world has gone after him. You can hear the disgust in the Pharisees' words. They tried everything they could to sidetrack Jesus. And yet they weren't able to do that because God had a divine plan. And so this morning, as we look at this text, sometimes, I just want to, as a way of introduction, sometimes people follow Christ for the wrong reasons. They follow him for the wrong reasons. Um, And that always is heartbreaking when you hear of maybe a, a college buddy that you went to Bible school with or somebody that's been in ministry And all of a sudden, you feel that somehow they fell away. They made a profession of faith in Christ. And they began to follow him. And maybe even God used them to some degree. And yet, at some point in their life, they fell away. And now they're as far from God as you can even imagine. And you wonder, what's wrong with this picture? In some cases, these people have actually been given their life to full-time Christian ministry. Sometimes things go wrong. Sometimes they're not only out of ministry, but they're even away from the church. They don't even go to church anymore. They're not even professing to believe in Christ anymore. And there's a lot of different causes for spiritual failure in somebody's life. Sometimes things in life or ministry didn't go the way they hoped for. Perhaps they got burned by other believers who violated their trust. Not that that's an excuse, but that happens all the time. Maybe some had nagging doubts or difficult questions about the Bible that that maybe they went to the wrong people. They went to skeptics for the answers. Some people fall away due to serious sin. And that shouldn't surprise us because the Bible's full of people who are examples of spiritual failures. When you look at the New Testament, I mean, even here in in John chapter 12, verse 4, it mentions Judas, who was one of the 12, as Bob read earlier. But he would betray Christ. Or in Acts chapter 5, you have Ananias and Sapphira. They were members of the early church. They were struck dead. Because of their dishonesty, really, to the Holy Spirit. Or you have Simon the Magician in Acts chapter 8, verses 9 to 24. He professed faith in Christ. He was baptized. But then he tried to use the, by the spiritual power of the Holy Spirit from the apostles so that he could impress crowds and do miracles. Basically, it boiled down to money. Later, even in Acts chapter 20, Paul warned the Ephesian elders that there were some even in their midst who would arise 
drawing away disciples after themselves. In 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, Paul warns Timothy over and over again about several men who had turned from the faith. Be careful about them. He spoke of Demas, a a fellow worker. He worked alongside of Paul and he had deserted him. The Bible says because he loved this present world. Later, both Peter and John warned about false teachers who probably once were sound, but now they were preying on the flock. See, there's a, a myriad of different reasons why people fall away from the Lord. And at the root of every case is that the person either never knew or lost sight of who exactly Jesus is. And I can't help to think that when Jesus rode into town that day that there were thousands of people who were following Jesus. We know they were following Jesus for the wrong reason. See, understanding Jesus' identity, understanding who Jesus really is, is crucial. It's, It's so crucial because your eternal destiny rests on that. It rests on the truth about who Jesus is and what he did on the cross. That's why John wrote in John 20, verse 31, why did he write the gospel? He says, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. There's no other name under heaven, beloved, whereby we must be saved. See, if you understand and you believe in who Jesus is, the Bible says that you will have eternal life. But if you have false notions about who Jesus is or false hopes about what he may or may not do for you in this life, at some point you will become disappointed and at some point you will fall away from your initial profession of faith. Notice I'm saying profession of faith. Because someone who truly possesses Christ, possesses faith, God-given faith, will not fall away. That's our lesson in Romans. But here we have Jesus coming in to Jerusalem in what we call the triumphal entry. Uh, Some commentators say it should be called the tragic entry because what happened didn't seem very triumphant at all. To the everyday eye, the man on the street, it's the beginning of what we call Passion Week or Holy Week. And it started and it triggered the events that ultimately led to our Savior's death. Um, Luke in chapter, Luke chapter 19, verse 41, it reports that when Jesus approached Jerusalem, that he wept over it. He wept over it. That doesn't sound like something a king would do. Um, The crowds lined the streets. They cheered for Jesus as this long expected king of Israel. And what they were hoping for is that this was the time that Jesus was going to raise himself up as a political leader and that somehow he was going to lead this military victory against the Roman soldiers and provide the eventual peace and prosperity of the nation of Israel. Now remember, at this time, historians, historians tell us that Jerusalem could be populated by as many as 2.6 to 2.7 million people. I mean, it was just bursting at the seams. Some people say that's why Jesus didn't stay in Jerusalem. He stayed outside in Bethany. You can calculate that. Commentators tell us, historians tell us, by at least approximately looking at history and finding out that around that time there was about 250,000 lambs that are recorded to have been slain at one Passover season. That's a lot of lambs. And basically, you figure out, you know, there's a number of of roughly 10 people per lamb. That that presses it to that 2.5, 2.7 million mark of people in Jerusalem. And so the city is just bursting at its seams. And all these pilgrims, people that didn't even live there, were coming for the event of the Passover. 
coming out of this rather small eastern gate, there was a multitude of people because they heard about Lazarus being raised from the dead. And they thought, wow, that's that Jesus guy. We want to go see him. So they started pressing out of Jerusalem toward Bethany where he was staying. And the people that were following Jesus were entering into Jerusalem. And you can imagine (laughs) giant traffic jam. You had all these people. And so they thought this was what Jesus was going to do. They hailed him as Messiah. They hailed him as king. And the fever pitch begins to escalate even more. Now, they weren't interested in Jesus' spiritual kingdom. That's what they were not interested in. They weren't interested in the idea that he could provide forgiveness for their sins. Or that he would be the king of kings and lord of lords who would be lord of every aspect of their personal lives. They weren't interested in that at all. They were interested in an earthly kingdom. Even his own disciples were interested in an earthly kingdom. They thought, this is it. This is the big show. This is where the rubber meets the road. Okay, let's, let's get this procession going. We're going to go in there and we're going to take over. The only problem was Jesus didn't go to the Roman garrison in Jerusalem. When he got there, he went to the temple. And I thought, what's he doing? <laughs> this doesn't make sense. He didn't ride in on a white horse of war. He rode in on a colt of a donkey? Really? This is a king? They were so interested in a Messiah that had an earthly kingdom that the spiritual kingdom just went right over their heads. And so within a week, the shouts of Hosanna, save now, Turn to crucify him, crucify him. And see, this crowd that was following Christ was following him for all the wrong reasons. And you know what? Such a faulty foundation eventually collapses. And that's what we see in the lives of people. What's interesting is Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is recorded in all four Gospels. So it's a key point in the ministry and life of our Lord. And to understand it properly, you have to recognize that it is a complete reversal of everything that Jesus has done in his ministry up to this point. Up until now, Jesus has mostly, mostly kept veiled his identity as the Messiah. You see several examples of this in the Gospels in Mark chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. When a demon proclaimed him to be the Holy One of God, he told the demon to be quiet. He didn't want anybody to know that. In Mark chapter 1, verses 44, and then also in chapter 7, verse 36, when he healed people, Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone. And you're thinking, well, wait a minute. You know, even his disciples were probably thinking, wait, aren't we on a PR campaign? Don't we want more followers? I mean, how, how are we going to get people to follow us if, if we're not proclaiming who you are? Even when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, he gave strict orders in Mark chapter 5 that no one should know about it. And even when the disciples figured out that his identity as the Messiah in Mark chapter 8, he told them not to tell anyone. The only exception in John so far, at least in this one gospel, when Jesus didn't veil who he was was when he told the Samaritan woman at the well that he was the Messiah in John chapter 4. But now all of a sudden everything changes. He's not incognito anymore. Now he deliberately stages this public demonstration to proclaim himself as the Messiah in Jerusalem. And remember, it's at the most widely attended festival of the year. This wasn't some small little carnival. You know, this was a major deal. Millions of people were there. Now, the other Gospels tell us the the way he acquired this 
this colt was he sent out two of his disciples. And he told them, hey, go to this town and you'll find this donkey and the colt and uh, bring it back. And if anybody asks any questions, just say the Lord has need of it. Apparently these people were followers of Christ to some degree. They let him have it and they brought it back. But when some of the Pharisees in the crowd, because they were mixed in with the crowd, because they were always mixed in with the crowd, they were always trying to set Jesus up. They were always trying to question him. Even when they objected to the people shouting Hosanna, and they said, you know what, you need to quiet your people, Jesus. He really affirmed what they were saying. He said, you know what, I tell you, if these people become silent, the stones themselves will cry out. In other words, I am who I am. Nothing's going to change it. This is the time. And he really put it right in their face. So there was this dramatic shift in Jesus' ministry. And we need to understand why. And the answer lies in the Jewish concept of the Messiah in Jesus' day. The word Messiah comes from a Hebrew word meaning to anoint. Christ comes from the Greek word meaning to anoint. Jesus Christ was not Jesus' last name. It's Jesus the Christ. Jesus the anointed one of God. Jesus the Messiah. And so the Messiah or the Christ is the one whom God anoints. Well, what were they looking for? They were looking for God to anoint someone to deliver them from the Roman rule. But God is saying, no, I anointed my son to deliver his people from their sin and to rule over them as king and Lord. When you look back through history, the kings of Israel were God's anointed rulers of the people. But they always fell short. I mean, even David, the greatest king in Israel, made some serious mistakes, sins. But God promised to send one of David's descendants to reign on his throne who would rule in absolute righteousness and justice, and he would crush all opposition under his feet. And the political aspect of Jesus' Messiah or kingship, that's what they had in the forefront of their mind. The political aspect of the Messiah's reign is really what's behind Psalm 118 that is quoted here in our text. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they even added there, even the king of Israel. They definitely had a political mindset. But the Old Testament also presents a second aspect of the Messiah's coming. Namely, that he would be the suffering servant who would bear the sins of his people, deliver them from God's judgment, and establish a kingdom of righteousness. See, he would not only be the king, but also Israel's prophet and priest. That's the theme of Psalm 110, which proclaims the Messiah not only as the conquering warrior, but also as the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's the suffering servant that we read about in Isaiah, Isaiah 53. It's implied in the the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9, which is cited in, in John chapter 12, verse 15, which presents the Messiah not as a warrior mounted on a powerful horse, but as a humble man mounted on the fowl of a, of a donkey. So they're looking for a political Messiah. They're not looking for somebody to free him from their sins. That was the least of their worries. And see, here he, here he is in the, in the, in the triumphal entry declaring himself to be Israel's Messiah, but not the kind of Messiah that they expected. He did not ride into Jerusalem on a powerful white horse to lead the charge against the Romans, but he came in on the fowl of a donkey. And a donkey, by the way, was not, you know, if you asked a king, hey, what kind of horses do you want? They went, oh, bring me the donkeys. You know, that would not be the first answer they would give you. They were not even in on that level. They were a lowly animal. 
an animal that basically was used to carry burdens around for people. It was not a kingly animal. And here he is riding on this humble donkey to offer himself for the sacrifice for our sins. And this public demonstration that that Christ put on, it was for the very purpose of provoking the religious leaders. That's why he did it. I mean, they wanted to kill him, but they didn't want to do it at the Passover. They were afraid of riots. But see, for Scripture to be fulfilled, Jesus needed to die as the Passover lamb for his people. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 talks about that. So Jesus, knowing that his time had come, Jesus, knowing that he needed to die as the Passover lamb for the people, He staged this triumphal entry to trigger the events that would lead to his death, coinciding with the Jewish Passover. It's important to understand the Jewish leaders did not take Jesus' life against his will. Rather, the Bible says that he laid it down willingly for his sheep. So with that kind of as a backdrop, I just want to look at a couple points here. First of all, the whole premise of this message is make sure that you follow Jesus because of who he is, not because of what you think he might provide for you. See, Jesus is not someone we turn to to have our felt needs met. That's, that's not what salvation is about. And unfortunately in the church, that's all it's become about. Well, Jesus can heal my marriage. Jesus can help my kids. Jesus can, you know, bless my finances. Jesus can bless me with better jobs or more, better cars or whatever. And all these felt needs that we have, we turn to Christ and we think, boy, if we just follow Jesus, all this stuff is going to happen. The first point here in your outline is don't follow Jesus only because of the temporal blessings that you think he might provide for you. It's not that he won't provide temporal blessings. He obviously does. Anybody who's a believer knows that God provides temporal blessings for us. But God presents, or John presents here, various groups that took part in this triumphal entry. The crowd who had come to Jerusalem for the feast took these branches of palm leaves and they went out to meet him. See, It's interesting because John is the only gospel to mention palm branches (laughs) that we now associate with Palm Sunday. And if you want to be correct in your timeline, this whole event most likely happened on Monday. It didn't happen on Sunday. And there's various reasons for that, which I think we spoke about last year. But if you put his journey into Jerusalem on Sunday, then you got a problem when you get to Wednesday because nothing's happening. (laughs) But if he rides in on Monday, then everything just pans right out. So for convenience sake, we'll call it Palm Sunday, but it really happened on Monday. What's interesting is two centuries before Christ, Judas and Simon Maccabeus had driven the Syrian forces out of Israel. And their victory was celebrated with music and, Book of Maccabees tells us, with waving of palm branches. So this isn't the first time that they've used this. It was also used when they had an earlier rededication of the temple. And so palm branches were really a symbol in the Jewish culture of victory over their enemies. The crowd was hopeful that Jesus was this messianic political liberator who would free them of Rome's domination. And their cry here in John chapter 12, verse 13, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, comes from, as I said, Psalm 118. And it's sung at various different feasts and tabernacles and dedications and all kinds of things, but it's also sung at the Passover. Hosanna, that word means save now. And we're thinking, wow, they they recognize Christ as the Messiah. They're, They're crying out, Hosanna, save now, God, save us now spiritually. They're not thinking that. 
The crowds are crying out, save now. What are they saying? Save from what? Save from the Roman rule. We want somebody who's going to go into Jerusalem and and really turn the tables around. This is the time. They're not saying save us from our sins. They're saying save us from this political enemy we have. See, this large group consisted of those who have a claim to Jesus because they thought of the the temporal benefits that he could provide for them. They thought that somehow he was going to usher in this age of peace and prosperity. That their hopes were, were fueled by those who had seen Jesus when he called Lazarus back from the dead. They thought, man, this guy has some serious supernatural power. If anybody that can go into Jerusalem and overturn the Roman rule, it will be this man. And so the buzz just kept building and finally Lazarus was raised from the dead and it just climaxed. And people were telling people, man, this is the guy. We got to follow this guy. He's going to do it right now. Let's go. If he had done this for Lazarus, surely he can go in there and turn the tables on the Romans. And in verse 16 of John 12, even his own disciples did not understand all these things. They got caught up in the melee. They just thought, okay, let's go for it. They didn't understand the spiritual significance of what Jesus was about to do. As a matter of fact, throughout Jesus' ministry, whenever he would bring up the fact that he was going to have to die, what would they do? They would oppose him. They didn't understand it. It was only after Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven glorified that they finally connected the dots between the Old Testament prophecies and what the crowd had done to Jesus. And there's a reason for that too. They just didn't finally figure it out one day. What happened when Jesus left? Who did Jesus send? He sent the Spirit. So when Christ left, all of a sudden they had the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit gave them wisdom, gave them insight and helped them connect the dots. They just didn't figure it out on their own. See, when you come to Christ, this isn't something you can just sit down and figure out and calculate and say, okay, I guess this is the right way. No, this is something that God does in you. He transforms you. He gives you new life. He moves you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. I mean, you, really, you're, you're kind of along for the ride. You're scratching your head going, man, what, what just happened? All of a sudden, I feel filthy. I feel like a sinner. I feel like I need sins forgiven. And I think the only person to do that is Christ. Why didn't you ever feel that before? Why didn't you ever figure that out before? I mean, there are people that have learned these principles and these basic facts of the gospel even in Sunday school. They've been raised in Sunday school. They've been raised in a Christian home. And they grow up and they don't know the Lord. See, it's not just a matter of knowing certain facts. It's a matter of God doing a work in your heart and in your life. And when he does that work, when he brings it all together and the dots are connected, all of a sudden, wow, you have a brand new purpose for living. It's not about you anymore. It's about your Lord. It's about serving Christ with everything you have. So their faith, even the disciples' faith, was severely shaken Until they finally saw that, hey, Christ isn't dead. He rose from the grave. Wow. Now we see him glorified. Wow, he just went up into the clouds. Man, what's this about? And now they had the Spirit, and the Spirit gave them insight and understanding. See, the application of this principle is simply this. If your your faith will be shaken and perhaps even destroyed... If you follow Jesus because of what you think he can do for you in terms of financial prosperity or good health or other temporal blessings. And the reason is, is because it's just that it's your faith. It's your faith. Let me tell you, your faith will not save you. 
you understand that? Your faith will not save you. You have to have faith that comes from God and God alone. That's the only faith that will save. What if you can contract a serious illness? What if you suffer a horrible financial loss? What if your marriage isn't some storybook ideal romance that you thought it would be? What if your children don't follow the Lord? What if your children even turn against you? I'm reminded in the book of Romans chapter or Hebrews chapter 11 verses 29 to 35 because in that text it shows us that God can and he does give dramatic victories to his people. He really does. But right in the middle of that text in verse 35 it shifts as verses 35 and 38 show people who trust in God. Well, what happens? They're mocked, they're scourged, they're imprisoned, they're martyred. See, the reward for living the Christian life, beloved, is not in this life. It's not. It's in the life to come. That's why the health, wealth teaching is such a horrible heresy that leads people into disappointment, that leads people down the road of destruction. When things don't turn out the way their false teachers say they would. See, we should not follow Jesus because we think that he will give us all the goodies we want in life. I mean, if you think that this is your best life now, you've you got a problem. Because it simply isn't. Your best life is in store for you beyond in glory. Well, then that brings the question, it begs the question, well, then, you know, if we shouldn't follow Jesus for these reasons, why should we follow Jesus? Second point, follow Jesus because of who he is. Follow him because of who he is, that he's God's Messiah, that he's God's chosen king. If your faith rests on the person of Jesus Christ as revealed in the scripture that we have, then you will not be shaken whether you go to prison, whether you catch a horrible disease, whether you're blessed with prosperity or not, your faith will be in the right place. Faith does not rest on happy circumstances, but on who Jesus is and what he has promised to his children throughout all eternity. That's why when we go back to the Roman book of Romans, we can understand that nothing is going to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Because we didn't join ourselves to God in the first place. God did. This reveals several lines that Jesus is the Messiah and the King. First of all, you see several fulfilled prophecies that Jesus is God's Messiah and King. There's two mentioned here that are fulfilled on, 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 uh, on this trek into Jerusalem. Psalm 118, we looked at that. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. That's from Psalm 118. The Jews understood this to refer to the Messiah. And just before those verses, the psalm cites the lines that Jesus applies to himself. In that psalm, 118, it says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. And when you stop and you think about this, this is fulfillment of prophecy. But John also goes further, and he uses a prophecy out of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. John twelve fifteen abbreviates that form of the quote. But he wanted us to understand that this is also a fulfillment of prophecy. I mean, never in your wildest imaginations would you imagine the Messiah, the king, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. I mean, that would just be ridiculous. It just doesn't go with the picture. 
I remember one time in, in Redwood City, they had a, I don't know if it was a Christmas parade or a Fourth of July parade, but they had the whole city council in this little children's train. You know, one of those little small little gas, and they were just crunched in there. And I thought, what's wrong with this picture? You know, they just looked like, it just didn't look odd. You know, here's a city council of Redwood City, and they're riding around in this little toy train. It, it demeaned who they were. And so when you think of, of Jesus coming into Jerusalem on a donkey, what is going on? John's point in referring to Zechariah's prophecy here is to show that Jesus in his first coming was not coming as this conquering king. He wasn't coming riding on a war horse, but he was coming as a humble king, offering himself as a sacrifice for our sins. If you don't want to know when Jesus comes as a war, on a war horse, all you got to do is look back at, at um, uh, Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. John writes this, Then I saw heaven opened up, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Finally, his mouth comes, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down all the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepresses of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has name, a name written, King of kings and Lord of of lords. Christ will return and he will come on a white horse. But trust me, you don't want to meet him then because <laughs> he's not coming as your savior. He's coming as your judge. Remember that show, Here Comes the Judge. Well, that's what's going to happen. Who was that? Bing Crosby? Or, no, uh, Flip Wilson, somebody. I don't know. But, you know, here comes a judge. You know, that's, what, that's what's going to happen one day. And so you have the, the opportunity right now to come to Christ as your Lord and Savior. To recognize who He is. To recognize that He came to this, this earth of His own free will in submission to the Father's will. He came, He took on a body like, like we have, yet sinless. He lived 30-some years, ministered, had a great following, and then gave it all up. He went to Jerusalem to die why? For the sins that are on our account. He took them upon himself. And thank God it didn't end there. He was raised the third day. He rose from the, the dead. And he ascended to be with the Father who now he there in the Father's presence intercedes for us on our behalf constantly. See, that's why nothing can separate us from the love of Christ that is in the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, because this is God's work. This is a work of a divine being. We're not divine. Well, secondly, here, Jesus' works of power prove that he is God's Messiah and King. John doesn't mention this young colt on which Jesus rode, but when you stop and think about it, a young colt, a young donkey, is probably most likely unbroken. Nobody's ever ridden it before. I don't know if you've ever tried to get on a horse that's never been ridden before. I never did. I've seen people that try. <laughs> and usually they end up on the ground a couple times before they break the horse. If they're really, really, really good. If they don't break their own neck first. It's not a fun thing. But here in John, he gives seven of Jesus' miracles or signs that he performed before his resurrection, plus the miraculous catch of fish afterwards. And he reports these signs, as we said earlier, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So there's 
lots of miraculous things that attribute to Jesus's power that prove that he is God's Messiah and King. Thirdly, Jesus' control of his circumstances under the Father's timetable proves that he is God's Messiah and King. He doesn't elaborate, John doesn't, as much as the other Gospels, how everything was arranged. But throughout his Gospel, he has repeatedly shown that Jesus was in control of his circumstances. And he was under the Father's sovereign timetable. You know, we're all, if we're followers of Christ, we're under God's sovereign timetable. Just last week when we were over visiting Paul Munson and Lois, we went in, prayed, and was speaking to Lois. And she said there was a care worker there, hospice, and she wanted to know, well, when is he going to die? When will he die? And the care worker said, I don't know. You know, it could be a couple days, it could be a couple weeks. It's, you know, usually the body walked her through all these particulars, but... And finally she realized, wow, well, nobody knows. And I remember telling her, Lois, everybody dies on time. We're on a divine timetable. I mean, think about it. Even in the Gospel of John, since John chapter 5, there's been so much opposition to Christ. And it's been mounting, growing greater and greater. And there's been several attempts to kill him. But in every case... You look at every case, Jesus was protected divinely. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. He wasn't to die then. Even in Romans, or uh, John chapter 8, when Jesus claims, makes claims of deity, and the religious leaders of the day, they says they picked up stones to stone him. And you're thinking, oh man, is this the end? But Jesus went out of their midst unharmed. <laughs> It's like, wow, how did that happen? Again, in John 10, the religious leaders accused Jesus of blasphemy. And they tried again to stone him. Because he claimed to be one with the Father, which is a stonable offense in their their religion. But John chapter 10, verse 39 says, he eluded their grasp. (laughs) See you later. I'm out of here. After Jesus raised Lazarus, the Jewish leaders intensified their attempts to kill him. In John chapter 11, it says, But Jesus withdrew because his time had not yet come. But now, beloved, six days before Passover, Jesus knew that this was time. His hour had come to offer himself as the Lamb of God. So he changed, he radically changed his ministry strategy. He openly presented himself as the Jewish Messiah, even though he knew that the crowds had mistaken, had a mistaken view of what the Messiah really was. He, his attempt was to force the Jewish leaders to go against their own plan not to kill him during the feast. They inadvertently killed the true Passover lamb, even as all these other Passover lambs were being killed at the same time. Can you imagine? Acts chapter 4 sums it up very well. Verses 27 and 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose destined to occur. Jesus was in control. God was in control even over his own death, even over the death of his son. He was not some helpless victim that died on a cruel cross, but he willingly gave his life a sacrifice for our sins. So the applied message of Jesus' triumphal entry is make sure that you follow him because of who he is, not because of what you might think he could provide for you in this life as far as temporal blessings. He does provide forgiveness of sin. He does provide eternal life for all who believe. But with that gift, we're reminded there may come times of hardship. There may come times of persecution. Well, lastly, we'll close with this last point, point three here. You can oppose Jesus and succeed in the short run. (laughs) But in the long run, you will lose 
and he will win. That's very clear. John chapter 12, verse 19 mentions the frustration of the Pharisees. It says, so the Pharisees said to one one another, you see that you're not doing any good? Look, the world has gone after him. See, it's just another example of John's irony. The Pharisees meant everyone is going after Jesus. Our efforts to get rid of him are backfiring. What do we do? But John wants us to see that although by the end of the week the tide had turned and the Jewish leaders were really gloating in their victory, it was very short-lived. Because Jesus rose from the dead. And when John wrote, the gospel was going out to the whole world, to Jews and Gentiles alike. In Revelation chapter 7, there's another place in the Bible where we see palm branches being used. It's the only other really mention of it in the New Testament. In verses 9 and 10, it says, After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, Look at what it says, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying amen blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever amen that's going to be the final victory that scene shows us the ultimate triumph of the Lamb of God The Jews thought they succeeded in crucifying him, but he will reign throughout all of eternity. And John is basically making the point, you know what? You can oppose Christ, and you can probably maybe even have a happy life doing so for the short haul. But I'll tell you one thing. You don't want to be entering a life of all eternity being on the wrong side of the tracks. You do not want to face Jesus as your judge one day if you haven't first met him for salvation as your Lord and Savior. Because we're not talking about a couple weeks. We're not talking about a couple 10, 15, 20 years. You're not talking about 100 years. You're talking about all of eternity, beloved. That's what weighs in the balance Because in the end, read the end of the book, Jesus wins. And trust me, you will lose if you have not yielded your life to him before he comes. So why do you follow Jesus? Well, some people follow Jesus for a lot of different reasons. But ultimately, we should follow Jesus because of who he is. That he is the Lord, the Savior. The right reason to follow Jesus is because that he's God's anointed one. The rightful king over every heart and life who created you. He died for you. He rose from the grave. He's coming back in glory to reign over all. So whether you struggle with tribulation or distress or persecution or poverty or health issues or death itself, you can overwhelmingly conquer if your faith is in him as your Lord and Savior. Father, we thank you for this day when Christ did ride into Jerusalem declaring himself to be the Messiah, the one who would save us from our sins because of his death on the cross. Lord, help us to follow Jesus, not because of what he can do for us as far as making our life more pleasant here on earth, but because of who he is. 
We pray, Lord, that you will draw us to Christ. Help us to know that on that moment that he died, he was not judged, the whole world was. And every human being will be judged eternally on the basis of what they do with the crucified Christ. He was lifted up for our salvation. I pray that anyone here in this room who doesn't know the Savior, may they see Christ lifted up. May they see him exalted. May they fall down before him, seeking forgiveness for their sin, seeking eternal life, a life that only he can give because he truly is the Lord and Savior. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.